Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. So, we're starting a new year with something new tonight, right? Right. All right. Our first ever update edition. That's right, Steve. I put all of our episodes, that's 65 full-sized episodes and 34 10-minute mysteries, through an internet search to see if any of them made news in 2019. And I found a few surprises. We're also going to be sharing some really special email we've gotten from people associated with some of our episodes, revealing some new facts and perspectives. So Steve, how about a little special music introducing each of our updates? Sure. How about this? Yeah, that'll work. Okay. Let's start off with episode 12, The Corpse of John Wilkes Booth. Ooh, okay. Yeah, you know, of all the stories that might have seen breaking news in 2019, this is the last one I expected. In 1865, history has it that John Wilkes Booth was shot and killed while hiding in a tobacco barn after having assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. Our episode challenged this historical fact because, if you'll recall, from the very beginning, people said the man killed in that barn was not John Wilkes Booth, and that the assassin went on to live a very full life, first under the name of John St. Helen in Texas, and then under the name David E. George in Oklahoma. St. Helen and George we know to be the same man. And twice, when that man believed himself to be on his deathbed, he confessed to being John Wilkes Booth. He was so convincing that when he did indeed die, he was embalmed and later taken on a decades-long tour of carnivals and freak shows. The Ohio connection to this one is that a doctor in Barberton, Ohio, appeared to be the final official owner of this traveling corpse. He inherited it from his father's estate when his father passed, although the good doctor never actually saw or received the corpse. The corpse by then had vanished. So what could possibly be making news in 2019, Steve? Somebody found it in their attic? (laughs) I wish. I wish there are a lot of people that would like to see that show up. Well, modern technology, of course, it has the habit of shedding new light on all kinds of old cases. 
And in this case, last year, some experts decided to apply state-of-the-art facial recognition software to this question. Wow, that's a good idea. Yeah, we were very fortunate. There were photos of John St. Helen taken in 1877, and we have photos of the embalmed corpse of David E. George taken in 1903 when it was still fresh, and we have some historical photos of John Wilkes Booth. He was a famous actor in his time, after all. The experts chose a photo of him taken in 1865. So they took these photos and put them into a computer that was already loaded with photos of 5,000 other white males. They hit the button, let the software start sorting through the photos, analyzing everything from jawlines and cheekbones to the space between the eyes. In less than one minute, the results came back. The computer spit out John St. Helen, David E. George, and John Wilkes Booth, is likely being the same man. Oh, very interesting. Is that crazy? Yes. Now, keep in mind, the photos that are fed into the system, they use a high-resolution scanner that only analyzes the face, not clothes or accessories or facial hair. It doesn't matter if the photo was taken in 1865 or 1995. It just measures facial features. George's photo was a near-perfect match for John Wilkes Booth, within 1%. That's crazy. St. Helen's photo, which was damaged and had to be repaired for the test, came back within 3%. In law enforcement, 5% is considered worth special attention. Oh, okay. We still have a big problem proving this, though. The family has long said Booth is buried at a family plot in Baltimore, but we don't know for sure. A request to exhume the body to check out whether it was him, was turned down by a judge who said no one could precisely locate where those remains were buried, and he wasn't going to allow some spelunking expedition. So it's still a mystery, although I got to say I was pretty confident those three men were one and the same, and I think this new technology is making that argument stronger. Absolutely. We just need to locate where he's buried. Let's find that corpse. Right. Maybe we can get our graves guy on it. Yeah. Michael Bonanno <laughs> out right. there. Find his grave. <laughs> All right. Ready for another one? All right. Let's have it. Let's stick with the topic of exhumations for a moment. Because 2019 gave us another little news item on a very old story related to our episode 47, John Dillinger's Loot. Oh, that's one of my favorite ones. I know. I love this one. In our podcast, we explored the folklore behind what might have happened to that famous bank robber's treasure after learning the FBI once spent weeks staking out a farm in Northwest Ohio that had been used by Dillinger and his Ohio accomplice, Pete Pierpont. After Dillinger and Pierpont were both dead, it appeared a whole lot of the money they'd stolen during a year of bank raids was nowhere to be found. But if they had actually buried some of their money in Putnam County, it is yet to be discovered. Now, the 2019 news item was related to something that was buried, but it wasn't the money. It was John Dillinger. His family has long told stories about how he had survived that killing 
and had come back to visit them. Well, the family, the modern-day family, they wanted to exhume his body to check his identity, and they even got a permit from the Indiana State Department of Health to do just that. But then they hit a roadblock. The cemetery where Dillinger is buried refused to allow it. Now, Dillinger nephew, Michael Thompson, filed a lawsuit just this past August asking the courts to allow it. But the judge had to deny it. He said, Indiana law requires the cemetery approve it. The cemetery doesn't even have to have a meaningful reason for denying it. Hmm. So if the cemetery says no, the answer is no. Right, because this isn't court-ordered. Like for a criminal case, so... Right. No, it's really a curiosity. I mean, they, like I said, there were all kinds of family stories um, about who he had been visiting and when, and I just really wanted to resolve it once and for all. But you know what? Thanks to that stubborn cemetery, looks like uh, this story's going to continue to be a mystery also. Okay, we've already got an update on our very last episode. Oh, the Hoods. Number 65. Yeah, who killed the Hoods? In that episode, we recounted the 1991 deaths of Margaret and Howard Hood in New Franklin, Ohio. The Hoods arrived home after a pleasant evening playing cards with family members, got ready for bed, and then were surprised by a man with a knife who cut their throats. Margaret was also stabbed multiple times, but managed to crawl out of the house and make it to a neighbor's lawn where her plea for help was heard, though she didn't survive the trip to the hospital. In that case, suspect number one was a man who lived with one of the Hoods' daughters, a house painter who had been questioned in the deaths of two other people and served time for physically assaulting a girlfriend but he could never be connected to the killing of the Hoods. While Howard's wallet was taken and some Hummel figurines were missing from the house, police never thought this was a robbery. The viciousness of the attack always made it feel personal, like someone was full of rage. Well, after our episode aired, we heard from the man who is currently living in the home where the murders took place. Oh, wow. Yeah. He asked that we not use his name, but he was okay with us sharing his email. You know, living in the house over the years and having spoken with neighbors and other people associated with the case, you know, he has an obvious interest and has picked up some stories that have not made it to the news media. Well, I'm glad he reached out to us. I'm glad, too, because this is really fascinating stuff. He told us that back in 1995, a letter surfaced from a person who was missing from that same neighborhood. He said, The missing person was found deceased by suicide, and they recovered a letter left behind that pointed to where Howard's wallet and the Hummel figurines were buried. The location of the contents were in approximation to a numbered pine tree in the entrance of Portage Lake State Park. Anyway, apparently this suicide victim was very young at the time of the murders in 1991, which left people speculating as to how he or she had such obviously pertinent information. The homeowner said he also learned that when the hoods were killed, They had just returned from an Atlantic City gambling trip where they'd won $5,000, which they had been keeping in their bedroom. 
So perhaps the motivation was robbery after all. During the episode, we also reported how a psychic had told authorities where they could find a knife related to the murders and that her directions led police straight to a weapon. But news reports could never explain exactly what she had told them or where she had led them. Well, the homeowner shed some light on that. Apparently, she pointed them to a neighbor's yard where a new house was being built and had open utility trenches. And that's where they found a knife. But there was no blood on that knife, and forensics could never tie it to the stabbing deaths of the hoods. None of this, including the suicide victim, the gambling trip money, or the details of the knife, were revealed in any of the news stories I found on the case, not even the more recent anniversary pieces. So I can't confirm these points, But given the source, the homeowner certainly would be in a position to learn things that weren't common public knowledge. And so I simply present it to you as it was shared with me. Ah, well, thank you for reaching out. We really appreciate it. Okay, we've got another email. This one with a little more insight into episode 23, Bank Heist, the Ted Conrad story. Oh, nice. So that story took place in 1969 and involved a 20-year-old Cleveland bank teller named Ted Conrad, who became so obsessed with a movie called The Thomas Crown Affair that he wanted to pull off his own bank heist. And he did. On his 20th birthday, he walked out of the bank vault at the end of his shift and absconded with an amount equivalent to about $1.5 million today, carrying it in a plain brown bag. The trail to catch him ended in Hawaii, and authorities believe Conrad probably remained somewhere in the Pacific, enjoying his ill-gotten gains on a tropical island. As recently as two years ago, U.S. Marshals renewed efforts to find him, saying it was certainly possible that he was still alive. Well, last month, we heard from a nephew of Ted Conrad, He didn't want us to use his name, and he was born a few years after the incident. As one might expect, the story of Ted Conrad often comes up at family gatherings, and the nephew said it came up again at Christmas time. That's when the nephew decided to see if there was anything new on the case and came across our podcast. Here's what he had to say. Your podcast filled in a few details that I never heard. About the only thing I can confirm is that none of the family was ever contacted by Ted. One particular family member that has since passed was extremely close to Ted, and he never, ever contacted her. Everyone believes that if he were alive, he surely would have reached out in some manner, at least letting her know he's okay. The nephew went on to say that his grandpa, who was Ted's dad, he was a Navy captain, a war hero, and a good man. If Ted ever contacted him, I'm very certain he would have reported it, the nephew wrote us. I'd say the same thing of other family members as well. These are good, decent people with no motivation to hide a crime. Everyone knows taking money from a bank is wrong, period. This wasn't a Robin Hood story. The nephew said the FBI did a thorough job interviewing family members, and he assumed throughout his childhood that his parents' phone was tapped. He said a few years ago, the FBI identified someone that they thought might be Ted, and they asked for a DNA sample from one of Ted's siblings. The sibling willingly participated. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't a match. The nephew added the fun point that while he obviously never benefited financially from his uncle's theft, I can pretty much win any who has the strangest family story contest, he said. (laughs) On episode 19, The Hicks Babies, We told the story of how in the 1950s and 60s, a doctor in the small mountain town of McKaysville, Georgia, would sell unwanted babies out the back door of his clinic. Dr. Thomas Hicks had a female associate in Akron who spread the word to local factory workers, and dozens of the babies made their way to Northeast Ohio. The secret broke in the 1990s when one of those now-grown babies launched an all-out effort to look for other black market infants who collectively called themselves the Hicks Babies. Well, in October, TLC aired a special series called Taken at Birth, and they had lots of interviews from Hicks Babies from Ohio and beyond who are still trying to find out who their biological parents are. Anyway, if this program interests you, it was six hours over three episodes, and you can still watch them all for free at the website, tlc.com. Another episode of ours, number 40, The Escape of Lester Eubanks. You know, when you're, when you're talking about these, you know, updates for like Lester Eubanks and it just, it's, it's exciting. I can't wait to hear what you have with the news. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Good. Cause it was fun finding them. Anyway, this this one is still making the news. We did our podcast after learning the U.S. Marshals moved him to the top of their most wanted list. Eubanks was convicted of the 1965 murder of 14-year-old Mary Ellen Diener. Then, in 1973, he escaped when administrators at the Ohio State Penitentiary let him go on a shopping trip. Right. Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. Since our program aired, we have learned that the U.S. Marshals collected DNA from Eubanks' biological son, a man who hasn't been identified, but who said he believes his late mother was raped by Eubanks. The Marshals hope to use the DNA in some way to track the missing Lester Eubanks, who they believe is still alive. But they've run into an interesting dilemma. The FBI's National DNA Data Bank that they would be putting this son's DNA into forbids familial DNA searches. Why? Well, first let me explain this to people who might not understand what I'm talking about. That's a technique officials have been using recently where they search private databases of willing DNA donors, like people who submit their DNA for genealogical purposes. It goes like this. Let's say a drop of blood at a crime scene belongs to an unknown killer. The DNA in that blood is entered into a genealogical DNA database and reveals the blood's owner has, say, an identifiable first cousin. Well, a genealogical researcher can piece together a family tree that might point out a likely owner of that blood so that that person's DNA could then be tested. The practice has been catching serial killers and rapists that have gone undetected for decades, but it's also controversial, and the FBI won't allow searches of their own government national database for fear of overstepping someone's rights to privacy. The end result is 
The marshals would like to use the DNA from Lester's son, but they aren't allowed to upload it to the FBI database. For now, we'll just have to wait and see if they figure a way to get around this policy obstacle. And, you know, there's certainly no guarantee that if they do, the DNA will lead to Lester Eubanks or if he's even alive. I have a feeling this case is going to be solved soon. I just, I have that feeling. They seem very determined. And don't the U.S. Marshals say they always get their man? Yep, that's right. They got to get him. Last year, we did a 10-minute mystery on a little crossroads in southern Ohio called, do you remember this one? And Knock 'em Stiff. Knock 'em Stiff. <laughs> yeah, we explored the mystery of its name and came up with some rather wild and colorful real life stories, like the fact that neighbors of the town once demanded police do something about the local Knock 'em Stiff church for releasing a fully intoxicated congregation into the public every Sunday. And you got an update on this. (laughs) (laughs) I've got an update on this. Get this. Again, when I popped this one into the browser, I had no expectations of finding news on Nuggum Stiff in 2019. But Jake Gyllenhaal is producing a new fictional movie called The Devil All the Time. And here's a description I pulled off the internet. In a place called Knock'em Stiff, Ohio, <laughs> a forgotten backwoods of this country, a storm of faith, violence, and redemption brews. The Devil All the Time is a finely woven Midwestern Gothic tale involving a nefarious cast of characters, a serial killer couple, a faith-testing preacher, and a corrupt local sheriff in a story that is told across two decades. Nice. So this fictional film, maybe not so fictional, I'm not sure, <laughs> is supposed to be released this year in, oh. in 2020 by Netflix. And it's no low-budget deal. Check out the star-studded lineup. It features Tom Holland, who played Spider-Man, Robert Pattinson from the Twilight movies, among others, and Sebastian Stan, who played Bucky Barnes in the Captain America and Avengers movies. Oh, wow. That is pretty big. So I'm looking forward to it. Watch out for that movie this year. It's called The Devil All the Time. I seriously had no idea this when I wrote that episode. I only came across Knock'em Stiff because I searched for unusual Ohio town names in this list, and I just picked it randomly to run through newspaper.com stories. So it was quite a fun surprise to find uh, Knock'em Stiff is going to be featured in a major motion picture. (laughs) That's cool. Oh, man. Some people just never learn their lessons, Steve. In episode 57, The Hazing of Stuart Pearson, we recounted the 1905 death of an 18-year-old freshman at Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. This is the one with the train. Yeah, yeah. He was decapitated by a train in the course of being hazed as part of a fraternity initiation. Do you have any idea where I'm going with this, Steve? Well, if you said not, you know, learning a lesson, then I'm assuming that there's another hazing incident at this college (laughs) um, over 100 years later. (laughs) uh, Yeah, let's, let's go on. Let me get to that. First, in Pearson's case, some said it was a terrible accident that he fell asleep on the tracks where he had been told to wait for fraternity brothers to pick him up and that the train simply ran over him in his sleep. Others said it was no accident that the fraternity had a habit of blindfolding pledges and leaving them on the tracks and that there was evidence Stuart Pearson was tied to the rails when the train relieved him of his head. 
The fraternity in that case was Delta Kappa Epsilon, often simply called the Deeks. Well, here's news an Ohio Mysteries listener alerted us to. In the spring of 2019, Kenyon College suspended the Deeks for, wait for it, (laughs) hazing activities, this time branding their members. Oh, that's a great way to do Branding their members. Why not? (laughs) Apparently, someone slipped an anonymous letter under the door of a college administrator to report the hazing. It's probably the guy who was next to get branded. (laughs) Next to get branded. I don't want it to happen to me. Well, the fraternity was not named in that letter. So what the college did was they, they met with the fraternity presidents and urged the guilty party to come forward. I should point out that hazing is illegal in Ohio, so this is a legal matter. Well, that meeting led to a second anonymous letter, this time the author saying, "Uh, I think you're probably talking about my fraternity, um, and I'm just asking if we could get amnesty if we identify ourselves. (laughs) So the college then sends letters to all the fraternity presidents saying, Whoever sent this, no, you can't get amnesty, but we will look favorably on your organization if you confess. And that's when Delta Kappa Epsilon came forward. So the Deeks were suspended as an organization, which meant they couldn't hold meetings or throw parties until the investigation was complete. That process ended last month, just before Christmas. The fraternity was found guilty of hazing activities and told that their suspension would continue for either four years or until the last active member graduated. Well, turns out the active members are currently all seniors. So that means the Deeks can start the process of reinstating their chapter at the beginning of the coming semester and possibly return as a registered student organization by this coming fall. Well, if you get the Kappa brand, that's oh a useless Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I mean, surely those kids knew about this history with their fraternity, yeah. and it's legendary. Uh, I don't know. Just <laughs> silly. Okay, to wind things up, I wanted to share a few notes from our good Ohio Mysteries friend, Michael Bonanno. We brought him up earlier. Michael administers a Facebook page called Too Late for Autographs, where he visits the grave sites of famous Ohioans and posts short stories about them. Michael has fed us a ton of mysteries, and when he learned we were doing an updates episode, he wanted to offer a few insights that we hadn't addressed in our episodes. So here goes. From episode 63, Mysterious Grave Sites. In that episode, we talked about some strange graves in Ohio, including that of a giant granite ball in a cemetery in Marion, Ohio. The ball sits over the family of Charles Merchant, and it became legendary because it moves, not visibly, but ever so slowly. This is known because there's a grayed-out circle that once affixed the bottom of the ball to its pedestal, and sometimes it's seen on the side of the ball, sometimes even at the top. The best guess is that the typical freezing and thawing of Northeast Ohio may have froze moisture in the divot at the bottom of the ball, causing it to move ever so slightly with those slight moves accumulating over the years. Michael seems convinced that that's the deal because just recently 
he visited Glendale Cemetery in Akron. And guess what he found there? Oh, did he find another big giant uh, yeah. with a mark on it? Yes. Oh, okay. Another large stone ball that appears to be moving in the same fashion. It's over the grave of the Taylor family. I love that cemetery. I've got to get out there and check that out. Michael was also our armchair detective on episode 54, The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. That was the disgustingly horrifying story from the 1930s in which a serial killer stalked Cleveland, killing people who were living on the fringes of society by beheading them while they were alive. He would even leave the bodies outside of Elliot Ness's office, you know. He was that brazen. Yeah. Yeah, he would dismember them and leave their body parts for just passersby, but also really kind of mocking Elliot Ness by leaving one out there. This case, by the way, also came to be known as the Torso Murders, if you remember it under that name. Anyway, we know that that Elliot Ness, just very famous lawman, you know, the untouchables, had a top suspect, a doctor named Francis Sweeney. Ness secretly interrogated him, a fact that wouldn't be learned until decades after Ness's death. Charges were never brought against Dr. Sweeney, but researchers learned that a week after Ness questioned him back in 1938, Sweeney checked himself into the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors Home, where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Anyway, Michael wanted to present another theory that we hadn't addressed that he had come across in his research on this case. And here's the theory that some of the researchers had put together. Dr. Sweeney was never brought to trial because a deal was made between the Sweeney family and Ness to protect a first cousin, Congressman Martin Sweeney, who certainly would have had to deal with the political ramifications of being related to a gruesome serial killer. Some who have studied this case over the decades believe the family agreed to commit Francis to the mental institution if Ness would avoid publicly identifying him, and that Ness agreed because it got him off the streets immediately, ended the risk to the public, and saved the financial and emotional cost of parading his gruesome deeds through a lengthy trial. Now, there's no proof this deal was made. It's just another theory. And finally, a note from Michael on our 10-minute mystery, The Girl in Blue, a really sad story from the Great Depression that took place on Christmas Eve. A girl dressed all in blue was struck by a train while traveling through Willoughby, Ohio. Her actions had some folks believing she ran into the train on purpose to commit suicide. Others wonder if the near penniless woman was trying to hop the freight in an attempt to get home for the holidays. So my update here isn't about the girl, but another little fact about Willoughby and its train, something I would probably have mentioned in our episode because it's just a fun fact. In 1960, the Twilight Zone aired an episode called A Stop at Willoughby during its first season. Host Rod Serling had ties to Ohio. He often did business in Painesville, and he would frequently stop in Willoughby on his way to and from his home in upstate New York. And he became inspired to do an episode about a paranormal train ride. Anyway, the city of Willoughby calls its annual neighborhood festival Last Stop Willoughby in honor of that episode. 
Serling's daughter, Anne, she even came to Willoughby to be the Grand Marshal of the parade in 2013. Again, not related to our girl in blue, who died tragically back in 1933, but frankly, it made me think the Towns Festival could just as easily reference her because Willoughby did turn out to be her last stop. Well, I hope you enjoyed these updates. If you missed any of the original episodes we talked about here, you can go to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Just click on the tab that says episode list at the top of the page, and it will lead you to direct links for all of them. That, or if you've got a favorite podcast app, you can look us up and just scroll through the library and find them. And with that, we are now back on our regular schedule after a two-week holiday break. Our Wednesday 10-Minute Mysteries will start again this week. And Sunday, we'll have a brand new full episode, complete with riveting mystery, an armchair detective, and our tradition of sharing with you an original Ohio musical artist. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.